if you were willing to invest 24 months ago, 18 months ago, and 12 months ago, it would be silly for you not to invest now. The average price of multifamily is down between 18% and 30%. Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full-time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. Welcome back, my Great to Wealth listeners. Today, I'm introducing to you mad scientist of multifamily, Neil Bawa. Neil, how are you? Fantastic. Good to be on the podcast, Saket. Well, thank you, buddy. Thank you. Um, Neil, how did you get this name, mad scientist? I know you're not mad. I, mean, you're, I, was, you're... <laughs> I was presenting at a conference, and I said something that was a little crazy, you know, just not crazy from the perspective of like, I'm bad shit crazy, but from the perspective uh-huh. of unusual. So I said something very unusual. I don't even remember what it was because it was five years yeah. ago. I was on stage. I think it was in Utah. And what happened is the person who was on the stage with me on the panel said, oh, you truly are the mad scientist of multifamily. And I let it be. I smiled. Everybody else smiled. Right. And then what I noticed is that the next conference, the person that was introducing me was also a panelist. So he was sitting next to me and he was like, this guy is the mad scientist of multifamily, blah, 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 blah. He goes on and talks about it. And then the next guy introduces me that way in a podcast. And before I knew it, I was the mad scientist. Hey, I like this name, man. I love this name. And we'll go into your background. You are a data scientist from training. I am. Correct. So the my computer science background, so I have a degree in computer science. The data science piece really comes from the work that I've done before. And even in real estate, the way I made my name was by providing a data science course. It's the most popular real estate course in the US. So currently, if you go type in the words Udemy, U-D-A-E-M-Y mm-hmm. space Neil Bawa, just Udemy Neil Bawa, click on the first link. You'll notice that there are about 12,000 people taking the course at this point of time. It's a one and a half hour long, 90 minute long data science course mm-hmm. on how to pick the best cities in the US. What are the ways to pick the best cities in the oh, US? That's awesome. What should you do? What should you not do? What are the basic yeah. mistakes that people make when they're picking cities? For some reason, everyone thinks that just because a city has you know great this or that, it must be a great city to invest in. And that's mm-hmm. quite nonsense. And so what I'd done basically was I'd gather data on about a thousand cities, and then I'd gather data on the profit that people had made in those cities. And then I'd run it through a statistical analysis software called R. And I used R to basically correlate profits with cities. And then I was like, okay, so what correlation works the most? Uh, Is it population growth? Is it job growth? Is it income growth? Is it home prices? Mm -hmm. Is it schools? Is it, you know, crime? What correlates the most to profits, right? And then basically I created a system that works Let's call it 95% of the time. It doesn't always work. No statistical system has 100% accuracy. 95% is a great I think this. I think it's a pretty good number, right? So I, I did that mm-hmm. and I published that in the San Francisco Bay Area a long time ago, you know, more than 10 years ago. And people started coming to my meetups. I was running a technology company. We had big classrooms. And I was like, you know, this is very cool stuff. And people would come in and be like, okay, what's your pitch? And I'm like, what do you mean? And they're like, what are you pitching? What are you, what are you selling? Yeah. It's like, no, no, no. I'm a technologist. I run this company. You're actually sitting inside a company right. I own. I just think this stuff is really cool stuff. And I'm doing it. I'm buying all these homes using these unknown cities that nobody's heard of. I would tell my story about an unknown city called, not even a city. It was a town called Madeira, California, where I'd, I'd made mm-hmm. a batshit crazy amount of money because the math was pointing this city to being like having an incredible supply-demand gap. And so I would show people examples. I would log into my property management software and show, look, you know, 4X the money on this property, 6X the money yeah. on that one. And people would be like, but why are you doing this? And they're like, what's the harm? I, I made great Why friends not? this way. 
So somebody said, you should do this as a living. And I'm like, no, no, I really like technology. My company is doing really well. And they're like, at least gather the database of all these people that are coming to your meetups, right? So I was like, that's a good idea. So I started having a sign-in sheet. And before I knew it, it had thousands of people in it. And years passed, many, many years passed. And then eventually the day came for me to sell my technology company. And I sold it. Once I did, I would go up to the meetup and say, hey, my company is sold now. And like 20 people approached me to partner with them. And I'm like, maybe I should just, you know, now look at the real yeah. estate. So I've been doing it for, I built my first building in 2003 and I didn't actually do a syndication until 2014. So maybe a year, 11 years later. Got it, got it. So it was a very slow and gradual process for me. So I sometimes people are like, you know, you use data science in syndication. The answer is no, I use data science in my life. Yeah. And syndication just happens to be one of the things I use it for. I use data science to grow tomatoes. I mean, it's just something that's part of my life. Right. Well, you are a mad scientist, man. <laughs> <laughs> I love that story. And, and you kind of we jumped ahead of the next question. My usual question is usually, what's your migration story? I think we pretty much covered your migration story. Of well, I, I have a few it. things I want to fill in there, if you don't mind, right? I so, would love to, please. Uh, a few crazy please. things in there. So. Mm. I'm running this tech company. I'm the junior partner. There's a senior partner that's the big boss. And one day he comes into my office and his face is really red and he's clearly very angry. And he says, you know, we're never going to rent again. I hate General Motors. We were tenants of General Motors. Mm -hmm. I hate General Motors. We're going to buy our own building. And I'm like, okay, Paul, you go buy a building. And he comes back like 15 days later and he's like, I have this beautiful building I want to show you. And it's two miles away. So we jump into a car, we drive over. And from the outside, it looks very nice. I'm like, this is going to be beautiful. We walk into the building. Suck it, it's a shell. It's empty. Oh, it, wow. It, it's 30,000 square feet of empty. And I'm like, where's the building? He says, right here. And I'm like, this is empty. And he's like, yeah, you're going to build it. And I'm like, I don't know anything about building. <laughs> I haven't even upgraded my kitchen. You want me to build right. a, like, this must cost like six, seven million dollars. And he's like, yeah, yeah, we'll figure it out. I know more. He didn't know more, by the way. And so he sort of mentored me Convinced through that process. You. We would basically run the company from eight to six, and then from six to twelve, we would basically be oh my developers God, man. Wow. of our own building, and that worked out absolutely brilliantly. I mean, the building was built; it was gorgeous. It gave our business a crazy advantage because mm. no one else in our business had that kind of custom campus. And then we built a second one, the third one, a sixth one. I mean, it just we kept going, and none of it had investors or debt. I mean, it was just company money, and we're building mm. this stuff, and then we're getting these huge depreciation benefits. Of course. And we're like, this yeah. real estate shit, it's pretty amazing. It's almost like legal robbery where you're you're able to basically lower your taxes and the IRS can't do anything about it. So I got right. more interested. And then I did the whole story that I mentioned to you where I created this data science system, started buying properties myself. Then I started buying properties for my mother-in-law and my sister-in-law and you know folks like that. And the ball just kept rolling. It just took me a very, very long time to become a real estate guy, 11 years. Neil, I do want to ask one question on that, right? So you are running a very successful tech company, business, right? And then something in you triggered that you wanted to real estate. What was that? Taxes. I mean, I live in California, so I was paying, I mean, you know, big fat tech salary, big fat tech bonus, yeah. 50% going to the IRS. I felt like I was working for the man. Right. I mean, I was Six just months. very pissed off. There were years, suck it, where 53.4% of my salary went to the IRS. Man, that right. That so hurts. when you're working so hard and giving away more than half of what you make, it's really painful. So, you know, taxes really for people like me that are in tech, they understand the benefit. And then I realized that if I were to do it on a full-time basis, then I had even other, you know, syndication right. tax benefits and I could share in depreciation. 
I mean, nothing like this exists in any other area, right? So it's just the real estate guys and the oil guys that have these crazy tax benefits. Correct, correct, correct. Did you explore oil and gas for you? I did. It was too up and down. I mean, it's like if you invest in 10 properties, like 10, nine of them will lose all of their money and the 10th one will you know, triple correct. or quadruple it, that sort of setup. It felt like a roll of the dice. It felt like I was in Vegas. I didn't lose any money, but I wanted something that was consistent. The other problem yeah. with some of these projects is just as the oil starts gushing out, they sell it. So you make money, but then what about the long-term cash flow? With real estate, I mean, I have properties that I bought in 2008, 2009, when everyone was telling me not to buy anything. And I was like, this is right. the best investment I can mm-hmm. ever make. I've never sold them. Their rents have all tripled, quadrupled. They're just awesome. They pretty much go by themselves. I couldn't find an equivalent on the oil side. Nothing wrong to say about right. oil. I think it's a great business. People should invest in oil. It's just, it's not for me. I don't like the rolling of the dice yeah, business. I'm, I'm an Indian. I have this very conservative Indian mentality. And that mentality is, Anytime you lose money, you should worry about it. Well, with oil and gas, if you make 10 investments, eight of them, you're going to lose all of your money. That doesn't work well with an Indian mentality. Correct. Correct. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. That was one of the biggest reasons why I picked real estate was tax problem. And this was the safest way to deploy the money that I understood. I don't understand oil and gas, right? So at least at that time, I didn't. So Neil, let's jump forward, man. So a lot is going on in multifamily, right? So a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you heard yes. that. I'm sure just not your word that Arbor $200 million liquidity, $260 million. Everyone in our industry knows this just happened two days ago, right? So two days ago. Arbor so a lot is going a, on. a lender, right? They're one of my lenders. Just de- Yeah, they, me too. Their guy, their syndicator defaulted on $206 million of debt. And they were selling that note yesterday or day before on the steps of the courthouse. And that's just the beginning. I mean, there's got to be 20 or $30 billion of this stuff that has to be done. So this is just the beginning. So let's talk about that. So I think let's take a deeper dive. What is causing this? So let's break it into a few parts, right? What is causing this? What can go worse right now? What are the timelines we're looking for? And kind of from there, we're looking at what are the opportunities, right? Because with any chaos winter, there's always an opportunity, right? So if you can say, let's talk about what's happening in the market in general. What's your pulse? I mean, the part that I want to answer first is, you know, what caused it? Well, the, the answer is straightforward. The Federal Reserve caused yeah. it because they set interest rates to zero after COVID. And they should have started raising them in 2021. But they wanted mm-hmm. to basically, firstly, we had a Democrat president. He wanted, you know, rates to be left lower. So you know, there, there's political pressure. Then yeah. the Fed really wasn't sure about when the economy would fully recover. So they left the rates, you know, at zero for too long. And when money is free or debt is close to free, people make all kinds of bad decisions. So what we had was we had a very large group of syndicators that were flush with successes from 2017 and 18 and 19, where they'd done well, 2020, where they'd done well. And so they had these huge audiences of people that wanted to invest with them. And so they ended up overpaying for property. So there were a lot of properties in the first half of 2021 and the second half of 2021, and also the first half of 2022 in that 18-month timeframe. There were a lot of properties that in my mind were, you know, people overpaid. So mm-hmm. I was very frustrated because Saket, I had built my database by that time. I'd done lots of projects. I'd done more than 20 projects, but I couldn't engage. I couldn't buy anything. And right. in that time frame that I'm talking about in those 18 months, a syndicator like me that has a thousand investors could only buy one property that I didn't already mm-hmm. own, just a single property. Whereas students of mine from, you know, went back when I was teaching this stuff in 2017, 2018, 
students of mine were buying six and eight and 10, and I was buying one. Mm. I couldn't understand what they were doing. As it turns out, I think that they were making certain assumptions that things would just continue being the way that they Bring were. Up. Right. When interest rates went up, the value of these properties went down. Now, the distress hasn't really started yet. As I mentioned to you, we've seen a few properties go back to the bank. That's no big deal. You know, essentially what, what happened is somebody bought a property for $60 million and that property today is worth $45 million. Right. Well, if they have $12 million in equity, there's no way to get that equity back. All the equity is right. already wiped out, right? Unless they somehow magically find a way to hold for five or six or seven or eight years. And then maybe the property goes up to the point where the equity can be made whole. The challenge. So many of these properties, people would have held them, right? They right. would have held them for six or seven, eight years and eventually returned their investor mm -hmm. equity. The challenge was the properties were purchased with bridge debt. So when you buy a property, a $60 million property with bridge debt, and you've got, let's call it, $40 million or $38 million of bridge debt. Well, that bridge debt, when you started out, was at 4%. Mm -hmm. And today it's at 9 And maybe you bought a rate cap. Maybe you didn't. So let's discuss both of those scenarios. If you didn't buy a rate cap, wow. I mean, 5% interest rate on $38 million. We're talking about you know yeah. $1.6 million of interest. Increase. It was, and now, and that's the increase, right? So that $1.6 million increase. Right. So obviously, a lot of times your property isn't cash flowing. You you had already paid a you know too much of a price for that property. So I'm only talking about those. Maybe that mm -hmm. property back then was worth 45 million and you paid 60 million. So mm -hmm. when you overpay, your cash flow is extremely weak anyway. And then when interest rates start to go up, that weak cash flow now becomes negative. So there's about, I'm guessing about 30 to 40 percent of all properties that were purchased by syndicators in that 18 month time frame are bleeding. And mm -hmm. there some are bleeding small amounts, thank God. Some are bleeding pretty large amounts, 100,000, yeah. 200,000 a month. There's a couple of properties that I've seen that are bleeding 300,000 a month. And so for a while, the syndicators do what is right and ethical. They put their own money into it. They borrow some money. They do whatever they can. But eventually they will get to the point where they don't have more money to feed it. They'll do a cash call. The vast majority of all cash calls fails because investors are not dumb and they see just how big a gap there is between the property's value today and the equity that's invested. They're like, a lot of them are like, I'm not going to throw more, you know, good money after bad. Mm -hmm. So when those cash calls fail, then you have two choices. You either do rescue funds like mine. I have a rescue yep. fund. So some of this, you basically have to inject more equity into it, or you give the keys back to the bank. So the $200 million sale that you mentioned where Arbor got the keys back and are now selling it on the steps of the courthouse is an example of those kinds of properties where all of the steps were tried. They tried funding it themselves. Mm -hmm. doing cash calls, trying a rescue fund, and then eventually they return the properties back to the bank. We think that there's several thousand properties that will go back to the bank in the second half of this year and all of next year. So this is one of those limited time distresses, which lasts, we think, for about 18 months. Mm -hmm. And how did we come up with that analysis, 18 months? Because it's pretty precise. The short answer is that people wised up, right? By the time early 2022 interest rates were being raised, underwriting started to adjust. People started paying less for these properties. More properties started being purchased with fixed debt, which mm -hmm. doesn't have this issue. The people that were buying properties, the bank started forcing down valuations and saying, I won't give you more debt. The bank started pushing you to add more equity because in 2021, you could buy a property with just 10% down. Yeah. Today, you need to buy a property with 35 to 40% down. In various different ways, there's probably a list of 20 different ways. By mid-2022, 
the properties that were being purchased were less at risk because of all right. these challenges. So the, almost all of the big risk is really beginning of 2021 to mid-2022. And so those properties are going to be sold at some point in between mid-2023 and the end of 2024, because some of them come up for renewal. Some of them, the rate caps are too expensive. So they have these rate caps they're renewing. And now when they want to renew a rate cap, the rate cap's a million dollars, right? It's like, where am I going to find that million dollars? I've already been putting money into this bleeding property. So it's a window of opportunity. It's not an ongoing thing. And so when somebody's trying to deploy a new money now, right? Kind of like they're... I mean, I think multifamily as an asset class is still not bad. I think the thesis hasn't changed. It's just that how we buy property and who we buy it with, that may have adjusted a little bit, right? So if somebody still wanted to deploy the money in this market, what's your suggestion, Neil? Wait to see where the distress happens. Work with a syndicator who actually understands better. And how do you validate that? Because in the last four or five years, you've seen probably thousands of multifamily syndicators coming up, right? So if somebody's coming in new at it, How can they make a due diligence analysis on these things? So my first message to limited partners, investors is, if you were willing to invest 24 months ago, 18 months ago, and 12 months ago, it would be silly for you not to invest now. Mm. The average price of multifamily is down between 18% and 30%. So one city in the US at this point is down as almost as much as 30% for certain deals, and that's Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Atlanta is down about maybe you know 20 to 25%. Other markets are down 15 to 20%. No market's down less than 15%. So, mm-hmm. And you might say, yeah, but the value of the property has gone down. No, the long-term value of multifamily is only tied to one thing, right? And that is net Operating, operating income. income. Yeah. The NOI of these properties haven't gone down because rents have been increasing in those months, right? They've been pretty stable for the last five or six months. They haven't yeah. increased, or maybe even gone down a point or two. But overall, when you look at an 18-month time frame, rents are up substantially, very substantially. And so net operating income is up. But there's a second thing that affects the value of the property, and that's debt, right? Mm-hmm. So what's happening is on the good side, we've seen NOI increase. On the bad side, we've seen mortgage payments increase. So the cash flow has decreased overall. The question is, what is your belief? If you believe that that two years, three years, four years from now, interest rates are going to be high, then you shouldn't invest in real estate. You shouldn't buy multifamily. You should buy no asset class. You shouldn't invest in the stock market because, by the way, if interest rates are really high in the two years, the stock market's going to be in the shitter. The only thing that you can actually invest in is treasuries. U.S. Mm. Treasuries. That's it. I mean, that's all. I, there's, that is the investable universe that I know of. Correct. If you Correct. believe that interest rates will be that high. And to understand if they are going to be high, it's best to look at past data. So if you look at post-World War II and start looking at what interest rates really look like over time, you'll notice that the general trend for interest rates is downward. Mm-hmm. And there's a clear reason as to why that general trend is downwards. Our debt is increasing. The U.S., right had debt at 50% of GDP, then 60%, then 70, then 80, then 90, then 100, then 110, then 122, 100, and as of today, it's at 124% of GDP, right. which means that governments to finance this ever-growing debt, right now it's 30 trillion, if they're selling treasury bonds at 5%, well, then they're paying one and a half trillion dollars a year just to finance their debt. Right, which basically wipes out half of Social Security, half of the Pentagon, half of Medicare. So they can't even run the country, right? right? So what they can do is in periods like this where interest rates go up, 
for some portions of that trillion dollars, they're paying 5% right now or four, right? So they're paying 4% for certain mm-hmm. portions of the treasuries that have come up for renewal in the last year or so. Right. But they know that at some point, interest rates will go down. When interest rates go down, they'll refinance those treasuries and they'll be back to 2 or 3%. And so the government will start paying 2% on 30 trillion, which is 600 right. billion, which is fine. We can run the country with 600 billion. We cannot run this country if we're paying $1.5 trillion, trillion on yeah. our debt because there's nothing left over for the different departments of the government. So the point is, it is perfectly okay for interest rates to be high for a year. It's perfectly okay for them to be high for a year and a half. When they start being high for two years, we have to shut down different parts of the US government. And when we do that, we have to lay off large numbers of people. And the moment we do that, it drags the rates down. Because remember, you can't have a depression. You can't lay off a million people and have Mm -hmm. high interest rates, right? Right. Because rates stay high because demand is high. So by crushing demands, we will bring them back down. And we've seen this in the last 70 or 80 years that rates go up and then eventually something happens, demand breaks, and then they come back down, right? And mm-hmm. we're already beginning to see demand fall in different parts of the mm-hmm. world economy because this right. rate issue that we're seeing is has nothing to do with the US. Our interest rate's pretty low right now, by the way, compared to lots of other places. Of the Eurozone is at 9% inflation. So that's 27 countries with an average of 9% inflation. We're at mm-hmm. you know, 5.5%, something like that. And so you look at the developing world, you look at places like India or Brazil. I mean, this thing is everywhere, right? So every country has the same problem. They can't finance their debt if this stays up. So eventually it'll go down. So my question to you as an investor is this, if you understand that they can't stay high, and if you look at the last 80 years and you realize that they've only been high for about 10% of the time, mm-hmm. then you know at some point this property is going to be worth more. Right. Because the only thing artificially keeping the price of this property down is the interest rate. And that can change, right? But here's what cannot change. When somebody bought a property at three cap 18 months ago, once that price was changed, that was it. There was no way to change that. Right. But today, you're buying a property at 25% less. There's Mm. no way to change that for the seller. You're the buyer. You're the investor. So you get that price locked in now. And now you get to get the benefit of the rates flattening out and going down. Because remember, the Federal Reserve itself now is saying, we might do one more raise in May. But they, obviously, there's, the Federal Reserve isn't saying, have you heard one Fed governor say, we're going to keep rates at 5.25%. Nope. No one has nope. said anything mm-hmm. this stupid. What the Fed is saying is, we might have to keep them longer for higher than people think. Correct. Because correct, correct. the stock market believes that the Fed will start cutting rates in July. I don't believe that, by the way. So the stock market thinks that they'll start cutting in July, then they'll cut again in September, then they meet again in November, then they meet again in December. There's four meetings left in the second half of the year. I think the market's too bullish. I don't think that there's any reason for them to cut that quickly. But there's no federal governor, and there's a dozen of these guys, mm-hmm. that have said something like, well, rates will still be at 5% at the end of next year. They have a yeah. dot plot. You can go check it on the web. And the dot plot clearly shows that they expect rates to go down, 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 down. And by the end of 2024, they'll be down to a pretty substantial level, not down to COVID level. Zero. That was a yeah. once in a life madness that will never come back. Right. But if every single person, whether it's a stock market analyst or the a Federal Reserve governor says the rates are going to be lower in 18 months, 24 months, whenever they go down. Don't you realize that when that happens, automatically the value of this property will increase without even the rents increasing? Right. That opportunity is extremely rare. We didn't have it a year ago. 
I agree with that, right? So that thesis makes sense. But let's talk about one thing that I get questioned a lot on this, right? So I would love to get your perspective, which is, should I wait, right? Because if the market's going to shift in the next 18 months, should I wait for another six to eight months? Because today the drop is 25%. In the next six months, the drop may become 35% if there's a window of opportunity. No, and I'll explain why. So for the last six months when I've been doing these interviews, we're doing this interview in April, right? So mm-hmm. my feedback has been wait, okay? So mm-hmm. I've been telling people, wait, if you ask me, how many properties did you buy in the last six months, Neil? The answer is zero, zero. right? I'm waiting. So, but we are here and I believe that this is the right time to buy and I'll explain why. I could be wrong, by the way, but this is my personal belief, personal philosophy. Mm-hmm. When you get to the point where everything is looking good, the opportunity has already passed. There has to be some pain, some distress, some uncertainty for people to sell their properties at 18 to 30% less Mm -hmm. than what was paid for them 18 months ago or 24 months ago, right? They have to feel uncertain. So right now, most people in the market think that the Fed will raise one more time, and that will be in Mm -hmm. May, or they won't raise at all. They'll be like, we'll be at a plateau. And that plateau will probably last for a few months. So it might be May, June, July, August. But once the Federal Reserve cuts a single time, let's call it October, Mm -hmm. right? Their dot plot says December, but I'm going to say they cut a little bit sooner than that. The moment they cut, I know rates have only gone down by a quarter point, but sentiment has changed Changed because now everyone in the world knows that it only gets better from here. Sure. Well, if you were selling your property, wouldn't you hold on? Of course. Yeah, at that point, I would. Because it only gets better from here. Right, because right. the Fed is right. now finally cutting after a year and a half of speculation. Then you get to the point where people are now going to start wanting more money for their properties. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're still going to be cheaper than a year and a half ago, but it may not be 26% cheaper. Now it might be 24% cheaper, sure. 22% cheaper. So sure. you're still getting somewhat of a deal. Mm-hmm. But now the seller is saying, wait a minute, you're going to put my property, you're going to lock it up, and then you're going to basically ask for five months. And I know that the Federal Reserve is in every meeting cutting interest rates. You know that. Mm-hmm. Why would I give you such a good price? I know you're going to get a better interest rate rate. on the day that you lock in. So understand that the opportunity, you cannot time it exactly, Mm -hmm. but I think we are approaching that time. So right now, my team is making offers. And the way I'm making offers is I'm not buying any property where they want to close within 60 days or 90 days. Right. I want longer time length. And I'm even willing to pay more for the property. I'm like, I'll pay you $50,000 more for the property. Not just give mm. you fifty thousand dollar more in deposit. I'll pay you fifty grand more, right? Right. But only if I exercise an option. So if I get to September and I'm still like, you know, I want to wait for a few more days for the Fed to cut another quarter point, I'll maybe put that fifty grand in, right? Right. But if I don't need to, I'll close. Right. I'll still right. get a better rate than I do today. So the reason why the window is now is multifamilies typically take four months to close. Mm-hmm. We are in April. If the Fed raises in May, then we are, everyone's looking at July, whether the Fed will raise then or August, the property mm-hmm. will still be in contract. So how much better of a price can you get? Once rates start to drop, it becomes very difficult to get better prices. And I know that there's some distress in the marketplace, but I want to point out to you that that distress in the marketplace is not equivalent to the $2.3 trillion of money sitting on the sidelines, patient money like Mm -hmm. me, sitting on the sidelines. They've been sitting on the sidelines for the last year, Mm -hmm. doing nothing. Well, 
at some point when they're convinced that this is as good as it gets, they jump in and start they buying because in. they're still getting yeah. that 26% discount, right? Correct. So the, Correct. that creates an equilibrium and it prevents the price from growing down, even though there's this quote unquote distressed properties coming to market. I love that. And I think it's more about, and who, who knows, right? I don't know how confident you about 18 months. It could be 12, it could be 24, who knows, right? Somewhere around there, right? So what's the right time to buy now versus six months versus 12 months versus 10 months? There is no right time going forward. As it from, depends from on how conservative analysis. you are. My feedback though is you don't want to be caught buying when everyone knows the Fed is cutting rates. Correct. At that point, the uncertainty is over. Yeah. Right. And we're pretty close to that. Six months ago, I said, no, I don't think we're close to the Fed stopping. I don't think we're close to the Fed, you know, Fed cutting. So let's wait. 12 mm. months ago, I said, let's wait. Today, I'm saying this is pretty close to where you're going to get. So yeah, you might miss out on the last 2%. Do you particularly care? I don't care. No, no, 2% is fine, right? So especially with the long term. So Neil, this is amazing, man. So let me ask this, how are you going forward? And you said your team is actively putting out offers right now. How are you underwriting differently now, except the debt piece? Because that is definitely unclear. There's a lot of unclarity on that. So whatever debt is, whatever the capital market is, it is. But what about the rent projections? Do you still see the rents going up? We don't see any rent growth this year. So we're underwriting flat rents for this year. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind that there's still, when we say flat rents, that's like minus 5%. And I'll explain why. So if one of the things that I study historically is what is the ratio of rents to inflation? What mm -hmm. I find is if inflation's 2%, rents tend to be two and a half. Sure. If inflation's 5%, rents tend to be five and a half, right? In, so if you look at them as a line over the last 80 years, you'll notice that the rents tend to be on the higher line, but just above inflation, just right? Above, so they right. track inflation, but a little bit above inflation. Why? Because rents are inflexible. Everyone needs a place to live. So when inflation's high, rents tend to spike up a little bit more. There are certain things, activities that are disposable activities. So when inflation's high, people just do less of them, right? Yeah. Like, you know, people going out on vacations and stuff like that. That stuff stays a little bit under inflation, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, rents, because they're a non-disposable activity, stay a little bit over inflation. But today, the situation's different. Inflation's running at somewhere between 5 to 6%. Right. Rents are flat. Why? Because rents went up like crazy during COVID. Mm -hmm. So we have to have a balancing act and that's what we are doing. So when I say rents are flat, you know what I'm saying? Rents are actually five and a half percent negative because inflation's at five and a half percent negative. So right. there are people right. who are like, let's underwrite for negative rents because we are seeing flat rents. That's crazy. You're already underwriting negative five and a half percent. You have to understand that with high inflation and flat rents are extremely rare anyway. Yeah. Right. Find me other examples in the last, you know, 50 or 60 years when we had high inflation and flat rents. This is only happening because we had so much rent growth in right. 2021. So much, such an absurd amount. Wait, so now the market is equalizing. 25%. Right? right. But at some point, the market is going to finish equalizing. Mm -hmm. And then we can't have 2% rent growth. We're going to have more because inflation's high. So my guess right. what is what happens is as the year goes by, inflation slowly moves downwards. Rents start to move upwards, up. right. but I still don't think they meet this year. I think they meet sometime next year. So I, I would say flat rent growth is probably reasonable for this year with slight rent growth, maybe a couple percent next year, two, three percent, whatever you feel comfortable. Then you get a jump in 2025 because mm -hmm. now you've gotten through the penalty period, so to speak, right. right? My motto and the industry motto should be 
survive to 2025, 2025. because this is yeah. the penalty period for us, right? So if you get through that, then at the other end of it, you get more rent growth. Got it. Is there anything else you're doing differently, Neil? Cap rates. I mean, we feel that this has been a shock to, let's call it 10,000 syndicators that had never been part of an inflation-driven mm-hmm. you know, process. Everyone got educated. People are now more hesitant to underwrite exit cap rates that are, you know, low fours or, you know, people were even ex- underwriting threes. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. But so now I think everyone's underwriting a little bit higher where the market is going to be. So depending upon the property, whatever we were underwriting as, as cap rates, we're underwriting 25 or 50 basis points higher, uh, once again, depending upon the property. Got it. Wow, Neil, such an insightful conversation, man. You guys, your wealth of knowledge here, wealth of knowledge. Neil, I want to respect for your time. I know we have a hard stop here soon. So I do want to shift uh, shift gears. And the two last questions we ask our, our guests here. One is, I mean, of course, you've seen a lot of different things, right? You're in the tech. You, of course, I'm assuming saw the dot-com, 2008. You're here now. So if you were to go back to your 20-year-old self, Neil, what are some of the two, three insights you'll share with that person? Well, the first one would be obvious. Buy Bitcoin when it's a dollar. <laughs> I would cheat. I would cheat. I would cheat. I think the big insights are that the short-term syndication business turned out to be a little bit overrated. The people mm. like Ken McElroy that said, I'm just going to hold my damn property. I don't care that you guys yeah. want, you know, want to flip and you know, do this 2x business. I think that was smart. It worked yeah. out. I mean, there are people who held properties from... 2010 to now, and they've made 6x, 7x, 8x, and they've got fixed debt, right? They're not worrying about what's happening in the marketplace. So I would go back and tell myself is, you know, in the longer horizon, stuff like multifamily tends to win a lot more. So don't be in a hurry to make money. Some Mm -hmm. properties, some portion of your portfolio, tell your investors, we want to be in this for 10 years, right? right? Instead of just selling in three years or four years. That's what I would say. Awesome, Ed. One last question here, Neil. Where do you think, like with so much angst around us right now, where do you think humanity as a whole should migrate towards? Towards building artificial intelligence into our heads. It's the only thing that will prevent us from killing ourselves. So we become phenomenally good at destroying our civilization. I think Mm -hmm. that we are on a path to complete destruction. There is a single thing that stands between us and complete annihilation, and that is raising our IQ. And the only way to do that in the short run is to integrate AI into our brain. Oh my God, you definitely have thought about it. Well, thank you. Thank you, Neil, again. Neil, if someone wants to find you and get in touch with you, where can they find you, my friend? I am lucky enough to be the only Neil Bawa on the World Wide Web. So first way is to simply type in my first name, last name, Neil Bawa, and you'll see a couple thousand articles, podcasts. I think I've done about 300 of these. The second way, which is more structured, is we share our thoughts about everything, including artificial intelligence and deglobalization and cap rates and all the multifamily stuff at a website called multifamily followed by the letter u.com. That's multifamilyu.com. And uh, there's about 25,000 people a year that sign up for our webinars. They like our geeky thinking. They're nerds like us. So you're welcome to join that community. It doesn't sell anything. There's no subscription. We've never charged a fee. It's just our way of sharing our thoughts about the economy and all kinds of crazy stuff that happens, climate change and how it affects real estate and many other topics. Some of them are really off the beaten path from real estate but we're not real estate people. We're technologists and we will apply right. exponential curves to anything, including real estate and see what we get. 
Man, Neil, this has been awesome. I am a consumer of your data. Whatever you put out, I'm a definitely a consumer. So I encourage everyone to go check out multifamilyu.com. And of course, go do some digging on Neil Bava. You'll love the insights he has shared on diff- multiple different platforms. So thank you, Neil, for being here. I really appreciate it. I'm sure we'll have you again at some point. Sounds good. Thanks, Akhet. Perfect. Thank you. Bye-bye. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Please consult your own advisors when making any investment decisions. Keep listening. We'll see you on the next episode.